Okay, so we are in Acts. Okay, Acts chapter 7. We're actually going to take a moment and finish up Acts chapter 6 first. But we will be in Acts chapter 7 today. And this uh, is a a big deal because this marks a transitional moment in the book of Acts. Okay, so we know that Acts by its very nature is a transitional book. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, As a historical narrative, what we're seeing uh, God do is... uh, move away uh, from a Jewish-centered church uh, towards a Gentile-centered church, away from Peter towards the ministry of Paul. And so up to this point, we have seen uh, Peter as the primary spokesman uh, for the church. Uh, But at this very moment, as we introduce ourselves to Stephen, what we're seeing is a major step towards a Gentile-focused church. We're going to see here the Jewish leaders refuse, once again, refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so beyond this moment, beyond this precipice, is, is a major transitional shift that we see. And we'll be introduced to the man Saul, very shortly, who will become the Apostle Paul. And he will lead that, that uh, he'll spearhead that movement towards uh, a Gentile church. And, and so this is very important doctrinally for us. Now, in terms of the narrative of the book, what we're seeing is uh, this man, Stephen. He's a deacon in the church, um, a man of great power. We'll talk about that in a moment. uh, Who is going to preach a message here. uh, Really the last major message uh, given to the Jewish leaders before they refuse it. Okay. Now, now in this message, what we're going to see is uh, not only kind of a retrospective of God's work among the Jewish people and a record of how he has used uh, the prophets of old and the patriarchs to reach out to the Jewish people and to call them to himself, uh, to call them to the Messiah. We're going to see that, but we're also going to see a lot of great and important principles of leadership. We're going to talk a lot about what it means to be mature. And we're going to use the patriarchs, we're going to use those prophets, and the story that Stephen paints as a jumping off point for our own learning. That we might grow to be more bold, that we might be able to to take on the characteristics of the leaders of old, those mature believers uh, that we see. We're going to learn a lot from Stephen. We're going to learn a lot from his testimony. And so this, this moment is very important, and I don't want to miss it, and it'll probably take us two messages to get through all of this content. I, I tried to fit it all into one uh, message, and, and I just don't think it's going to happen. I apologize for that. But, uh, but we're going to dig a little bit deeper than that. I also want to point out to you that um, next week, I'll be actually preaching in main service. Um, and so Pastor Sam Miles is going to be filling the pulpit in Kaya next week. So that's pretty exciting, isn't it? So come ready for that. Who, know, who knows what that's going to be about? Um, but but that'll, be, that'll be good for us as a ministry as well. And then we'll come back and finish up this story of Stephen. So, let's start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And let's talk about the man Stephen, review this a little bit. We were introduced to Stephen just after his ordination uh, into the role of deacon. Okay, and, and what we learned is that Stephen is described twice in just three verses as a man of great power and faith. Okay, look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders 
and miracles among the people. And so what we know about Stephen is that he was full of wisdom and the knowledge of God's word. But most importantly, most importantly, he was a man of faith. And it was that belief that he had in God that gave him great power to speak and proclaim the gospel and to do mighty works and miracles among the people. He was used mightily. And as we move forward here, what we're going to see is that makes him a mark. That marks him among his enemies. And it's important for us to know that if we are going to be people of faith, we will also be marked by our enemies. Look at verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called, uh, which is called the synagogue, of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. Now, let's take a moment here uh, to, to talk about who these people are. Okay, there's a group of people who are disputing with Stephen, okay? They're referred to as the Libertines, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia. So the Libertines, the, we don't know a whole lot about some of these groups of people. But we, we know a little bit about the Libertines. And the Libertines were, were Hellenistic Jews whose forefathers had been slaves to the Romans but later set free. Okay, now listen to me. What we need to know about the Libertines is that these were radical Jews. Okay, these were radical Jews. Um, and, and, and perhaps it was, it was their uh, persecution that led them to be particularly later, uh, radical, but they were, they were radical. Okay? And, uh, and we, we, we see um, this same movement taking place even today. We recognize that there are uh, radical sects of, uh, of all different sorts of religious fervor, right? All different types of religions and denominations. We're familiar with radicals. Uh, but the thing about radical people is they tend to be very bold. And so they're ready to dispute with Stephen. We see the Cyrenians. We see the Alexandrians. You know, Alexandria becomes later on uh, uh, an epicenter for heresy. Okay, so later on in the church, uh, we see that Alexandria becomes a hub for heresy, but it was first and foremost a place of philosophy, and, and it was a place of, of academic uh, training. Cilicia was a maritime province, province in the south of Asia near Tarsus, the birthplace of Paul, and, and was one of the chief towns and the seat of a celebrated school of philosophy. These people were elite in their Judaism. They were academics. They were smart. They were sharp. They were well-trained. And they've come to dispute with this one man, Stephen. And I think that that says a lot about who Stephen was, doesn't it? That it required all these people from all these different backgrounds with great education to come and face the man of faith. So Stephen, we find though, when they approach him, is unafraid to engage them. And not, not because of his pride, but because of the sake of the gospel. He is unafraid. Look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Wow. They were unable to resist the wisdom by which he spake. In other words, Stephen displayed a level of wisdom that was beyond explanation. It was not something that they expected. With a group of, of, of 
people as smart and as well trained and as intellectual as they were, there was no way they expected they would, that they would be uh, made foolish by this one man. But they were. And they acknowledged it. They saw his wisdom for what it was. The wisdom was of God's power and affected the nature of how he presented the things that he had to teach. And so what happens is we see them regroup. And what we're about to see is that the attack changes. So listen, verse 11. And they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. They suborned men. means that they bribed a group of men privately to make accusations against Stephen among the people and before the council. And their goal was to stir the people up. Now this is, this is the type of tactic we often see Satan use when he doesn't have an answer for the power and the wisdom of God. When an individual has a spirit-filled witness and they are full of wisdom, the only thing that Satan can do is use lies to attack them. You guys awake? So, I think a lot of you guys in this class are actually familiar, if you think about it, familiar with this type of attack. And that's because I've seen this testimony play out many, many times in our ministry. What happens is a young person, uh, like yourself, will come to a place where they recognize that Jesus Christ is worth following with their whole lives. And so what they'll do is they'll, maybe they'll sign up for discipleship. And they'll start getting trained. And Satan won't have a whole lot of answers for that. Uh, Satan doesn't have a whole lot of answer for the person filled with the power of God. Okay, The person that's growing in faith. He doesn't have a whole lot of spiritual answers. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so what he does is he reverts to scheming and plotting in physical ways. right? And what he'll do is he'll stir up people in your life to bring attack. Okay, so... so Maybe this resonates with you. I know for a fact that there's many of you who, when you've made a decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ, or you committed to discipleship, or you committed to being a member, a committed member of Midtown Baptist Temple, that you might grow and learn. You have family members and friends who, whether intentionally or unintentionally, began to stir things up. Right? They questioned your decision making. Right? Or, or, or maybe they were like, this seems to be interfering a lot with family time. This church thing, it seems to be getting in the way of, of this or that. And, and what they did is, is, what they, did is they, they presented you with a, with a physical, emotional, and convoluted reason for why you shouldn't take your faith as seriously as as you are. And, and many of you have, have known this and experienced it. Satan's primary objective in stirring people up against us is to stifle the growth and the momentous power that God is building in our lives. That's his primary objective. And the question is has he been effective at that? Has he been effective at that in your life? 
Perhaps there was a season uh, where there was a tactic like this in your life and it worked. Maybe someone made you feel guilty about taking your faith so seriously. Right? Maybe people were stirred up against you and it, and it threw you off course. If you've been stirred up, stifled, or sidelined, I want you to know that it is not the end. That simply because you've made, uh, you, at one point you made a decision to be affected by the stirring up of other people. Right? If, 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 if Satan's tactics have worked against you in some way or some manner, I want to tell you right now that you do not have to allow that to continue. You can make mature decisions. And I'm not telling you to neglect the words of the people who love you. Okay, That's not what I'm suggesting here. I am suggesting that Jesus Christ is more important and his, his opinions and his will are more important than the opinions of the people in our life who don't agree with what we believe. Do you understand? And we cannot be allowed to let Satan use them to distract us and to stifle us. So here's key point number one for those of you who've made mistakes like this. When your mistakes feel monumental, then Satan is the victor. Okay, when your mistakes, when you're stifling, when being sidelined feels monumental to you, then Satan has won and he is the victor. Okay, so, so what I'm suggesting here is that some of us have been stifled. Some, some of us, the tactics of Satan has worked against us. And over the last few months, last few weeks, or maybe if you're looking back at the whole of your faith, maybe the last year you've been stifled in your faith. Maybe you've allowed people to come between you and Jesus Christ. Some sort of relationship. Some sort of job. Some sort of tactic, physical tactic of Satan. Emotional tactic of, tactic of Satan has gotten in the way of you and living out your faith. And if you, for a moment, feel that mo- that is monumental and too, too big for you to, to overcome, then Satan has won. But here's the key point number two. When your mistakes feel minuscule in light of redemption, then you are the victor. When, when you put your mistakes in their proper context, right, in light of who Jesus Christ is, and the fact that His grace has covered all of your sin, in, the, in, in, in light of the redemptive power of the cross, then suddenly the mistakes that you've made, and the stifling that you've encountered, and the struggles that you've had, and the things that have been a hurdle for you in your faith, suddenly those things become minuscule, And you have the ability to move forward in power, a victor. Now, Stephen is a great testimony to us of not being hindered by the tactics of Satan. Let's keep looking. Let's look at their accusations against him. Verse 13. And they set up false witness, uh, witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Okay, so first of all, their accusations included blasphemy against God. Okay, They believed that Stephen was being blasphemous against God. Presumably because he challenged the, the permanence of of the temple. Now, now, 
to give you some context, this might be confusing, and so I want to make sure I explain it clearly for those of you who aren't familiar with this. When Jesus Christ came to this earth, it was with the intention of, of circumventing the laws of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus Christ represents for us the defeat of a law-based religious system. Okay? And so, so what that means is that Jesus Christ proclaimed the end of religiosity and introduced the idea that every single person can have a relationship directly with God without the need of going through the temple worship that they've been accustomed to. And we heard Jesus even talk about this. And he, and he alluded to these types of things. He says in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Now we won't get into the, all the doctrinal implications of this, but Jesus Christ died and rose again three day, in three days, and he was speaking about the temple of his body. But he was also alluding to the fact that his death, burial, and resurrection represented the end of temple worship as they knew it. And it transferred the power of worship to the individual's heart before a living God. Does this make sense? And this was a direct threat against their entire social order. And they came at Stephen with the intent that they aroused the passions and the pe- of, of the people and convinced them that he was attacking their culture, their belief system, and how they understood everything. They also accused him of blaspheming against Moses. He was accused of blaspheming against Moses. And this is presumably because he spoke to the end of the law. The, 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 the fact that Jesus Christ put an end to law-based worship, which would again been an attack on their cultural system. But, but with all of this rage pointed directly at Stephen, I want you to look at his response. And this, is the, this is the part I want to spend a moment on. Let's look at verse 15 of chapter 6. And all, and all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him. Now imagine for a moment these people raging and accusing and yelling speaking out lies. Okay? This is the strategy of Satan at work. You understand? Look. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him and saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. What? What does that mean? These men opposed him directly. And his countenance was that of an angel. The countenance of peace. See, a believer who is confident in the power of God has no need to scour or sulk. Contention does not need to be so effective on us that our countenance would change. Do you ever consider that your face is saying something counter to what your mouth is? I want to, I want to point out to you that it's really hard to fake being spiritual. People see through it. You know what I mean? 
I mean, maybe you're really good at it. But people see through it. I remember uh, when I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Jones. And I was always a good kid. I, I had been really quiet throughout all of elementary school. I was very shy. Um, and I, I had this teacher, Miss Jones. And, and she was old. And she was a curmudgeon. Okay? If you're familiar with that word. Yeah? She was like, uh, I mean, maybe you had this teacher in elementary school. Like, she should have retired before I got there. You know what I mean? Uh, she was just waiting on that pension plan to kick in, and, and she was out. She was done. She, was, she did not like fourth grade, I don't think. Uh, and she made it very hard for me to like fourth grade. Um, now, I remember getting in trouble in her class. I'd never been in trouble, never, ever, ever, until fourth grade. And this is the reason why I often got in trouble. She would tell me that my face, okay, uh, was disrespectful. Okay. In retrospect, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the most handsome individual, right? Uh, I have a heavy brow, right? So it tends to make me look more intense even than I am. And, I, and so, but I do think in fourth grade when Miss Jones spoke that my countenance often changed to one of cynicism, dislike, disdain, maybe even. And she saw it and she knew it. And as much as I wanted to hide it, my face often gave me away. Right? And I think it's important for us to, to, to look at this key point. Key point number three. The countenance of your face always reveals the state of your heart. The countenance of your face always reveals the state of your heart. And I think that this is important for many, many different reasons. For those of you who are ministers of the gospel... And you're, you're growing in your faith, and you're, you're wanting to be a, a, a person uh, that uh, effectively invests in others. Then your countenance plays a role in that. And the only way to, to, to fix your sour face is to be full of faith. Right? So the, the issue with your relationships, that just like you never say the right things, or your face tends to give you away, you know the issue with that is your heart's not right. Your heart's not right. You know, if my heart in fourth grade would have been right towards Mrs. Jones, I would have probably never gotten in trouble for my disrespectful face. <laughs> now that I'm a teacher, I understand what a disrespectful face is. I'm very clear on what that is. <laughs> I was sinning against Miss Jones, that's for sure. You know, Stephen displayed great poise and a joyful countenance in the face of serious temptation. What an amazing testimony of faith, no matter what the circumstances James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse, tem diverse temptations. Count it all joy. And you know what? For many of us, uh, when we fall into diverse temptations or trials in our life, really what we usually do is sulk. And our face tells the story. Our face tends to tell the story. But what we see in Stephen is something completely different. You know, John Phillips says of Stephen, John Phillips, the, the, uh, the writer, the Christian writer says, Stephen was not concerned with an acquittal. 
He knew the character and the, de- the determination of his foes. He was a marked man. His concern wasn't with those temporal, superficial things. He wasn't concerned about his life, his physical life whatsoever. His concern was to unravel the false from the true and the twofold charge laid against him and also to show the true nature of Christianity. And I wonder if, I wonder if we do that. I, I wonder if our lives are like Stephen's. When, when, when contention comes up against us, when the tactics come against us, are we prepared in wisdom to unravel the lies of our foes? And are we willing to display with our countenance and with our lives what it truly means to be a Christian? That no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how difficult they are, no matter what comes at us, we are prepared to display joy and poise and comfort through the Holy Spirit. I mean, for me, personally, Stephen's testimony is very, very convicting. I don't think if I was under attack like this that I would respond the way that he does. Let's continue on and look at the message of Joseph. Let's look at what he had to say. Acts chapter 7, verse 1 says, Then said the high priest, Are these things so? Okay, so they, they present the accusations. And they say, speak up, answer for yourself. Verse 2 says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharon. Now, let let me just tell you right now, this message that he's about to preach continues on through the remainder of this chapter. And it's fairly long, and that's why we've got to split it into two parts. But, but what he does is he uses the testimony of the Old Testament patriarchs, the ones that they respect. Okay, He uses, he uses their arguments against him to display what it truly means to believe Jesus Christ. To have faith. And, and this, is gonna, this message is going to paint for us a beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is. And what the disciples were up to. And why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin were so wrong. Why the enemy was so wrong. And I love it here because he starts with Abraham. He starts with Abraham. He begins his defense with the story of Father Abraham. This is where Judaism began. And it would certainly pique uh, the rowdy crowd's interest. Okay, They would be listening. They would be paying very close attention. But the, the most important thing about starting with Abraham is, with, is was that Abraham was independent of the law. In other words, he came before the Mosaic law and the Levitical law and he, he, he preceded the, the religious system for which they abided by. So they would have said, Father Abraham, yes. We love and adore Father Abraham. But what Stephen is doing is being very calculated because what he's saying is Father Abraham existed outside of your system. Father Abraham had a relationship with God. Father Abraham, he he heard the voice of God and he obeyed it. And he was not confined or constrained by the law or by the temple. 
In other words, he was making the point that God is unrestricted by religious rules or institutions. See, God revealed himself to Abram in Ur of Chaldees. And now quite similarly, quite independent of the priestly order, he had revealed himself to the apostles through Jesus Christ. You understand? There's a parallel to be drawn. Key point number four. The resurrection of Jesus Christ signified the end of institutional religion and the beginning of individual relationship. The resurrection of Jesus Christ signified the end of institutional religion and the beginning of individual relationship with God. So let me point out the difference to you very briefly. When we say institutional religion, what we mean is the idea that the religion is funneled through people. Through a small cluster of spiritually elite in order to gain access to God. Okay, so let me, let me say that in, a, in another way. You know, in religious systems, there are always people at the top in control. And temple worship was set up this way as well. In other words, for religion to be done right, in order for people to have access to God, God had of his own desire, created a system where people had to go through a priestly order to gain access and forgiveness from God. The sacrifice came through the temple. Worship came through the temple. The feast days came through the temple. It was the epicenter and the place of influence as it concerned relationship with God. Does that make sense? But what we see taking place after Jesus Christ is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of His words extended to humanity in order for them to have access to God directly. In other words, what He did was he de- God, through Jesus Christ, decentralized religion and gave every individual who put their faith in Jesus Christ direct access to God. That's what He did. Jesus Christ devastated the religious system and gave everyone the opportunity to have direct access to God. Let's talk about what the Bible says about that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, Christian, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, what we have to understand about being a believer is that God has made us a part of the the royal priesthood. He's made us a part of that. And now, and now, listen to me, and and it sounds cliche, now, it's not religion, but it's relationship. I remember, you know, I grew up in church, guys, and, and, and sometimes church had a hole in my heart, and I loved Jesus, and there are, there are certainly times where I was attending church regularly, right, and, uh, and, and God did not have my heart, okay? And I remember uh, when I transitioned, I, I left the church that I had grown up in because, well, I wasn't growing and, and I didn't understand why I was going there. It seemed futile uh, to be there. So I, I started t- attending the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And I remember really early on 
I had, I'd never heard this before, and it, and it took me off guard. I had never heard the phrase that what we have is a relationship as Christians. We have a relationship, not a religion. I had never heard that. I was probably 17 years old. I had never heard that in my entire life, in my entire history of faith. I had never heard that before. I had genuinely thought that what I was doing was religion, and that that was completely, that was great before God. That was completely justifiable before God. That what gained favor with God was me attending church, sitting in a pew, acting good from day to day, and then coming back the next Sunday. And then I had somehow appeased God and gained his favor through doing that. I believed that. That's what I thought. And, and the paradigm shift came when someone put a Bible in my hand and said to me that this thing and the Holy Spirit that indwells you that these things together give you access to God and they give you the ability to commune with Him in a way that beforehand, before Jesus Christ, had never been known. And this, this I'm telling you right now, this changed my life. And so as often as I hear this idea of, of a relationship with Jesus Christ, not a religion, as, as often as I hear that phrase... It never has grown cliche to me. Because it, it literally revolutionized the way I saw my faith. I now know that I can have access to God. That I can speak to Him openly. That He is my friend. That I can know His very words. It's not a mystery. I don't need a pastor to tell me. I don't need a priest to tell me. That I can come to God and He can tell me exactly what I need for my life. That I can know Him from day to day and hour to hour. That I can go before Him in prayer. And that he, can, that he can hear my voice and know my heart. And we can never take that for granted. Jesus Christ represents the end of institutional religion. And gives us all the ability and the capacity to know him intimately. Let's, let's continue on. Let's look at the, the story of Abraham. We might not even get to Joseph today. Um, so let's look at the story of Abraham. Verse 3. And said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of Chaldees. Remember, we're speaking about Abraham here. The story of Abraham. And dwelt in Sharon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. Okay. There's a lot right there. There's a lot right there. Now this is, what, this is important to understand about Abraham and what Stephen is saying to the, to the Sanhedrin. Okay, this is what he's saying. Remember Father Abraham, how God came to him directly and said, get ye out of the land that you dwell in, and I've got a new land for you. I, I'm, I'm giving you Canaan. I'm giving you a promised land. Okay, now, now Abraham doesn't know much about this, right? This whole monotheistic idea of God was new to him, right? Before that, his people, they were, they were pagans. They were idol worshipers, Right? So knowing, knowing the one true God was new. And so he heard the voice of God and he obeyed and he went and he didn't really know what the end would be. 
All he had was a handful of promises. All he had had was a basic revelation. I am the one true God. Get ye out of this land and go into a land that I'm preparing for you. And so what he did is he took him and his family and he went. And as time passed, what, what became evident to him was that he would not see the day that he got to enter into the promised land. He would not see that day. But it would be his seed that would see the day. All he had was a handful of promises and a relationship with God. That is all he had. And it was sufficient for him. Now listen to me. And all his days, all the days of his life, all he had was a handful of promises and wandering feet. He had no place to call his home. He had not entered the promised land. He did not have a place of rest. He was a stranger in the earth. See, the parallel for us is uncanny. And it was uncanny for the disciples. And this is why it was important for him to emphasize this part of the story. You know, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, this is all speaking of the Jewish people, but it is relevant to the Christian as well. Okay, here's the point. Whether Jew or Gentile, okay, no matter who you are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. And you must grow accustomed to the fact that you, in many regards, are a wanderer on this earth, awaiting the day in which the promise will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, whether by death or rapture, there's a day that you're waiting for. See, here's the problem. Here's the major difference between Stephen and the Pharisees, okay, and us and the lost world. See, the lost world wants to grow comfortable with this place. They want to carve out a home and a space here. They want to make this place their home. And you know what? Sometimes Christians pretend like that's their mission as well. There's some of us in this room today who are trying to carve out a nice little spot, a comfortable place here on earth. And I'm telling you right now, that is the wrong objective. See, all we have is a handful of promises and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we go out into the world as strangers. See, this is why we have the liberty to make decisions like, you know what, I'm going to be a missionary. That, that decision becomes exceptionally easy when we begin to believe that God has made us to be strangers and pilgrims in the earth. The decision to go help plant a church or the decision to go across your classroom or across the cubicle and share the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes exceptionally easy when you recognize that this world is not your home. We are strangers and pilgrims here. And the disciples knew that and Stephen knew that and he was proclaiming that to be true to the Pharisees. He was telling them, look, You've forgotten. 
that the true followers of Jesus Christ have always been strangers on the earth. And we have grown accustomed to rejection. And your rejection will not impact us. The fact that you do not believe will not impact us. We are going to move forward with the promises that God has delivered to us. Let's continue on. Verse 6, And God spake on this wise, that his seed should sojourn, sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil for 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will, will I judge. And, God, and, and said God, And after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. See, God's word to Abraham was that, that he would not just be a stranger, but that his people would endure hardship and they would be in bondage for 400 years. Well, that's a hard thing to hear. Oh, that's a good plan, God. Thanks. That's a good promise. I'll hold tight onto that one. I mean, no one wants to be in bondage, right? And we'll look here in the, in the testimony as it unfolds. We see the nation of Israel go into bondage under the hand of Pharaoh, right? And we see that persecution unfold. But here's the deal. Stephen was alluding to the fact that, that just like the seed of Abraham, the spiritual offspring of Christ, the church, would face their own oppressors and they would withstand. They would withstand. God's promises were sure. They would enter into the promised land. Regardless of Pharaoh's authoritarian hand, the nation would endure and God would deliver them and he would bring them into the promised land. Right? We know the story, right? Likewise, what God has set into motion through Jesus Christ is that in the lives of the disciples, they would face hardship and oppression. And as long as his people were, remained full of faith, they would come out victors. They would come out victors. Here's a question for you. When you, Christian, when you read the end of the Bible, do you walk away more convinced of his promises to you? When you read scripture and you see how things unfold for the believer, do you walk away with greater faith? Or is it of like no concern to you? I don't know. Maybe you've grown so, so accustomed to the idea that we win in the end. Do you just embrace that selfishly? It doesn't change anything about your faith. I mean, maybe, maybe you're that selfishly Odyssean Christian who sees the very end of the story and remains unaffected by the fact that the promises will come true. That God has the end of the story planned out. That's no big deal to you. Yeah, I know that. Or when you read that Jesus Christ will one day redeem us and have us for his own and that there will be a marriage supper and that there will be a feast and then we will rejoice in His presence. And there will be no more pain and no more suffering. And then He's got a plan for exactly how to execute that. Do you walk away more faith-filled and more ready to be a sojourner, to be a stranger, to be a pilgrim? Key point number five. The mature minister's endurance is sourced in their capacity to believe God's promises. You want to be a mature minister? Well, you better have endurance. A mature minister 
has the ability to suffer long, to endure, to go the distance, to not be thrown off course. That's what the mature minister can do and be. Uh, But there's no way of coming to a place where you have that kind of endurance. If you don't first determine that God's promises are sure, they're sure, they will come to pass. I don't have to see the rapture to know that when I die or when I disappear, there's something for me on the other side. His promises are sure. And if I live in light of that, I have great endurance. Anybody ever run long distance track? Yeah, cross country? Yeah? Oh yeah, I know. Sam and I need to do that. Um, okay, so, so I, I did too for a while. <laughs> for a season or two. I was a quitter. I quit, I quit my senior year. I quit all sports my senior year. <clears throat> but but I'll say this. One of the things that I realized really early on, like my freshman year, was was in running track. There was a certain point uh, in running. You're, oh, yeah, you're one of these freaks. Okay, you know all about this. Right? You know all about this. This is like the best runner in our midst. Um, when you're learning how to run long distances, one of the things that you're doing is you're extending your threshold in terms of pain. Okay? And so, like, when I first started running on long distance, it was because I did really well at the in the mile in eighth grade. I ran it <clears throat> like the fastest in, in my class, and it was by accident. I just like, oh, I'm a runner. Okay, I think I, I ran it just under six minutes. Okay, which for an eighth grader, apparently, that was okay. That was pretty good. All right, and and so um, so I went into track. But what I realized is that mile after mile is a different story, right? And and what, what I was learning was that I had to learn how to endure when that I got that catch in my side and that pain in my, in my, in my side came. I had to run through that. Hannah, you're not down with that? Run it out. Do you, is that what you do? Oh. Because okay. <laughs> you seem like really agreeable over there. Like, yes. Um, now listen to me. If I did not believe that was worth it, then I would not have learned to do it. In other words, I believed that there was some sort of grander thing at the end of running. Like maybe it was just like personal satisfaction or maybe winning. Winning's good. I didn't do a whole lot of it. But winning is always good. Okay? And and having accomplished something, that was my end goal and my, my objective. Guys, the only way to endure in your faith is to have the end objective in mind. It is the only way. Or you will get hung up when the enemy comes at you. Okay, we've said a lot. We're going to stop there. It's time. It's time. We've gone long. Here's what I want to say. You guys seem a little sleepy today, whatever. It's all good. I I actually have learned that when you seem sleepy... That's not always a bad thing. Many of you just look that way every day, every moment. And then you are actually listening to me, okay? So I, I, I'm not going to get out, been out of shape about that. But here's the deal, guys. Uh, from this, this testimony, 
this story of Stephen and this message that he preaches. It is crucial that we walk away with some very serious principles about what it means to be a minister of Jesus Christ. If this is easy for you, you're doing it the wrong way. If Christianity comes easy to you and it's a good, it's a good time every day, right? right? You do the Jesus dance when you wake up and you're completely unaffected by the enemy and things are going great for you every day. And uh, I would also bet that you're probably not getting a whole lot done for the kingdom. And so here, here's the point. This is, we're seeing a couple things happening. We're seeing the Jews literally refuse the gospel once and for all. And, and, and from this moment till today, we are awaiting the time in which the Jews will receive the Messiah. It'll happen. Things will change. And the nation will come back to God. But this is a huge moment in the Bible, guys. Things really begin to change from this moment on. But the thing that we need to walk away with is, is with the inspiration of the content of what Stephen is saying. He is pointing out to the, to the Pharisees exactly what a Christian is. And he is telling them, he's telling the enemy to their face, we will not be affected by your scheme. We will be unaffected by your plot. We will endure. And the point that we didn't get to get to today is this. That when we get rejected, when Jesus Christ is rejected, when we suffer persecution, then revival is right around the corner. God does great things in the midst of suffering, pain, and rejection. That is actually, that is actually the most fertile garden in which we can work. Is a garden full of suffering and pain. And we're going to learn that next time we come together. Now, some of you guys got stuff you need to pray about. Some of you have things that you need to work through. And we're going to do that right now during uh, our last worship song. If you, if you can come up, let's pray. If you know that you've been stifled, if you've been affected by the enemy, and it's time for you to put a stake down, and it's time for you to live for God, and it's t- time to learn how to endure in a relationship with Jesus Christ, holding on to His promises, if it's time for that, then come forward and pray. Grab somebody, and let's meet with God. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. I love you, and I'm grateful. And, uh, and I'm, I'm moved in, in my heart by the story of Stephen. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you used this mighty man. I'm so thankful for his testimony. And Lord, I, I pray that, that what we're learning from Acts here...